Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. With that, we want to turn to Mark chapter 4. And today, this is one of the great texts of Scripture, uh, one of the great parables of Jesus, the parable of the sower. I'm reading out of the ESV in Mark 4. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. And I'm going to go down to verse 13 now where he explains the parable. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we welcome your Holy Spirit to be active through this video recording. Lord, that you would uh, uh, help us to hear. You said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Help us to hear. Help our hearts to hear what you're saying in this gospel teaching today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see four factors affecting the seed that was sown. And we have to understand when Jesus taught, I love, I love um, the fact that Jesus just used what was in his environment. You know, he's, he's in a boat, you know, using the, the uh, audio, the natural audio projection that would happen if you're out on a boat and it projects across the water onto the hill. And I just see Jesus kind of looking around like, oh, the kingdom of God is like, um, ah, like a, like a field, it's like seed. And you know, this was an agrarian society. And so they, they really understood agricultural analogies and pictures and allegories. And so Jesus uses one here and it, it's a very famous um, parable, um, picture of spiritual truth, the, this parable of the sower. And so there's four factors here that he says affect the seed when it is sown. And the first one is these birds that come when the seed fell along the path and they just took it away. It says here in verse four, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and birds came and devoured it and they took it up. And Jesus later tells us what the birds are. 
and where they come from. And it's a little shocking, actually. It says, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So Jesus says that the birds are Satan. You know, at first I was picturing these little, like, you know, sparrows and robins, these cute little birds. When I heard that it was Satan, I'm like, well, maybe we need to think of the birds more like vultures just coming down, you know, just big, nasty birds. Uh, in Africa, uh, on one of my many trips, we stayed in a guest house and, and uh, we'd wake up. We didn't need an alarm because we'd wake up, you know, at the crack of dawn every morning because these, these big birds are on the roof. And, and in Africa, in these guest houses, the, the windows are open. Uh, there's no glass a lot of times. It's just sort of stone uh, structures cement structures that have like, you know, wind, little wind uh, patterns and stuff that can blow through. Anyway, and you'd hear this, right on the roof and this awful sound of wake you up every day. And I kind of picture it like that. These birds just, uh, you know, scavenger birds just waiting to to just swoop down and just grab anything they can find that they could consume. So the birds are Satan. And Jesus called Satan the father of lies. He said he's been a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. He creates lies that take people away from the truth. So what steals the word away from this first category of person is lies. And, and maybe you've been on a beach uh, and tried to feed the, uh, the seagulls. Have you ever done that? I mean, they, they just, they come quickly what they see, oh, oh, there's somebody's feeding, somebody's feeding the birds, and they'll just like they'll they'll see from hundreds of yards away or up in the sky wherever they are, and they'll just overwhelm the person. And what's just seemed like this fun, cute little, uh, you know, this little experience for your kid of just feeding these birds. All of a sudden, you have like you know three or four dozen birds just you know just everywhere scavenging whatever they can find or whatever they can grab out of the kid's hand. Uh, seen that with my own kids. I remember being in a, in a hotel right on the beach in Virginia Beach and, and uh, when Grace and Joy were small and just starting to feed the, the seagulls. And, and it, was, it was shocking how quickly they came. And all of a sudden, like, it wasn't fun being out there in the balcony anymore feeding the birds. The kids wanted to, like, escape for their lives because it was like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And, and that's what it's like. The, the, the seed is sown and the birds just immediately swoop in and just take it away. So with this person, it's like they hear the word And immediately there's a lie of Satan to steal it away. They hear the word and there's a lie that says, oh, Jesus isn't really God. Oh, somebody made this story up. Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. My sins can't really be forgiven. I'm too bad of a person. Or I don't really need to be saved. Why do I need to be saved? I'm a good person. Or God isn't really going to judge anyone. He's not a God of judgment. I like to think of God as, you know, just a... Uh, loving, and he is loving, but he's also uh, a God of justice, and we'll ju- the Bible says we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. Or a voice in your head says, you're not religious, this isn't for you, or, you know, maybe it's a family thing. Uh, your dad would have thought this was stupid or weak. He always said religion is for weaklings. Those lies, lies, birds that come in and just steal away the seed of the word of God. And we have, to, we have to understand that the Bible calls Christians believers, right? So to be a believer, I've got to believe stuff. Believers believe stuff. I believe crazy things 
As a Christian, I believe in the virgin birth. I believe Jesus lived an amazing, miraculous life. He walked on water. He, he opened blind eyes. He, he raised the dead. He called Lazarus from the grave. I mean, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Amazing things. I, I believe all that stuff. I believe he lived a sinless life and died on the cross for my sins. And, and at his death, amazing, remarkable, uh, thunderous things happened, including thunder and darkness fell over the over the, the world for hours and people were raised out of, the, out of their tombs and they, people saw uh, resurrected people that were dead walking around, like amazing power demonstrations of God around the death of Christ. And he rose from the dead, I believe that. That makes me a believer. But when, when someone who is in this category where the seed falls on the path and the birds are there, it's like immediately the, the, the seed is just taken away and it, it doesn't even grow. So think about it. Jesus is very plain when he, when he says that it's Satan. I mean, some people think of Satan or the devil as a concept of evil. Well, Jesus says this is a real person who has a real agenda, a wicked agenda to destroy the work of God in the hearts of people. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and if he really is who he said he is, he's really Lord, and if there really is a devil and his goal is to destroy the work of Christ, then wouldn't he put his greatest efforts into creating lies that steal away any hope of ever believing in him? And look all around us in culture today. There's many lies about Jesus in the gospel today. And the fact that there is proves that the Bible's true. It proves what Jesus is saying is actually happening. That Jesus is real. That the Bible is true and that there's an enemy. There's, there's a vulture there's, there's birds, uh, you know, scavengers, there's, there's seagulls that are coming to take away the truth. And in America, there's many lies about him, and we could talk about those, but I also experienced it when I went as a missionary to Turkey and preached the gospel, which is an Islamic nation. It's common belief among Muslims that Christians teach because of the, because of the virgin birth. Uh, there, there's this lie in Turkey that Christians teach that God actually physically had sex with Mary, that God came down and had sex with Mary, which they rightly consider a blasphemous thing. We, of course, we don't teach that at all, but that's a prevalent belief in the Islamic culture and in, in, in Turkey. Or they believe that we teach that Allah was defeated at the cross, you know, that, uh, that God was weak and was defeated. So uh, they actually teach because they believe in the prophet Esau, the prophet Jesus, that Judas died on the cross, not Jesus. And so there's these lies even about the cross itself. But is that shocking if there's a devil who seeks to destroy the work of Christ? Further, they believe that Christianity was created to undermine and overthrow Islamic states. So they see Christianity as almost like a political um, as a political agenda, and, and it's a political movement that seeks to undermine Turkish Islamic nationalism and destroy uh, their state. <clears throat> lies, all lies. Can't you see that there's lies that are tailored to culture that are created to steal the seed of the gospel in the hearts of people at the moment they hear it? That's the birds, that's the first factor affecting the seeds. The second factor affecting the seeds is the rocks. Jesus said in verse five, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of, depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. So Jesus said there's some seed that has no root 
and, and that's because it, it's it's in this soil that's bad. It's like it's got these rocks in it, and and it can't the root can't get down. It doesn't get down and grow. And in verse 17, to go back to the text, Jesus said, they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. So their faith has no root, meaning there's no strength. There's no backbone. There's no strength to face adversity. They have not counted the cost and failed to foresee the tribulation and persecution that comes as part of the Christian life. When it does come, they sort of choke on it and their faith dies in the hot scorching sun of those trials and of that persecution. So they originally see the joy of the word, but they don't see the cost. And Jesus said, consider the cost. Or, or worse, they're told that there isn't a cost. And I think a lot of modern Western Christianity might be put in this box. I call it coffee table Christianity where the Christian message is reduced to little motivational ideas that make people feel good and pacify the itch for religious security, but it's shallow. Or where someone is told that to follow God is perpetual prosperity and health and blessing. Now, in one way, it is perpetual prosperity in our hearts, but that doesn't mean there's not external suffering or hardship or persecution. The rocks come, the scorching sun comes, the abrasive, difficult parts of the faith, and the person has no spine, they have no root, and they wither. In his book, Hell's Best Kept Secret, evangelist Ray Comfort concludes that the problem is the way the message and the gospel is presented today. He says a lot of modern Christianity reduces the gospel to what he calls life enhancement and not salvation. And there's this picture that uh, he uses that I wanted to share. It's the idea of a, of a parachute, a person that's, that's traveling on a plane. The difference between life enhancement gospel and true salvation. The life enhancement gospel uh, tells the person that's going to be riding on a plane, put on this parachute, it's going to improve your flight. And so the person puts the parachute on and uh, they, they, they sit in their seat and immediately they can tell this thing is kind of clunky and, and is going to kind of create a, a little problem in my back. And they get a little pain in their back and they're hunched over. And then they look over to their right and they see somebody just like, <laughs> you see, see that guy? You see him? He's wearing a parachute on the plane. And, and yet the guy's like, well... I don't know, he's thinking, the guy that gave it to me told me that it's going to make my life better. So I, at some point, I'm, I guess I'm going to feel that. Plane takes off an hour into the flight. He's got this, you know, his back really hurts now. Everybody's laughing at him. And uh, about, you know, about halfway through the flight, he's like, forget this parachute. This isn't making my flight better. He takes it off and he throws it on the floor. He's like, I'm never putting that thing on again. Now compare that first passenger with our second passenger who's on the same flight, but he's told not that the flight, not that the parachute will improve your flight, but he's told that you put this parachute on because I have information that at some point during this flight, the plane is going to break up and you're going to be required to fall tens of thousands of feet to the ground. So put the parachute on because it'll save you. Now, same flight maybe even the same seat 
puts the parachute on. People are laughing at him. See this guy? He's like, well, you're, the, you're the fool. You don't have a parachute on and this plane's gonna break up. Didn't you believe that guy out there? And uh, you know, he gets a, little, gets a little ache in his back and, and he's like, it's all right. Because <laughs> I'm gonna be alive uh, if what that guy said happens. All of a sudden, halfway through the flight, the plane breaks up and that person pulls the ripcord and they, they, they're safe because they, had, they wore the parachute. They have salvation. And they look around at all the people falling to their death and he can see how foolish they were that they didn't believe the messenger. The first person uh, is upset at the messenger. He, he, he loses trust for the messenger because he, uh, the first passenger is told that the, the parachute's gonna improve your flight. But the second passenger is told, you need salvation, put this on. And the Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand and when we receive the word that part of the Christian life does include trials of many kinds. It includes persecution. The Bible says all those who want to live a life of godliness will be persecuted. And so that's part of the Christian life. It's part of the Christian faith. And uh, we don't wear the parachute because it's going to improve the flight. We believe that Jesus is our salvation. Now, there are fruits of the Christian life, you know, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kind of, all these beautiful fruits of the Christian life, but they're not to be draw cards for the gospel. They are effects and fruits of believing in the gospel of salvation. One other note about the rocks here. One lesson of the rocks is the context of where the seed is planted. You know, you, a seed needs to be planted in the right spot to grow. And I'd like to advocate in this for attending church gatherings. Plant yourself in good soil. You grow where you're planted. Many people want to follow Jesus, but hate the church. They don't, they don't really plant their seed. But a seed has to be planted deep to grow. So let your seeds be planted among God's people in the context of a healthy gospel-centered church. Now, some people say, well, Derek, can I go to heaven without going to church? The answer is yes, we're saved by grace through faith. You can go to heaven without going to church if your faith is truly in Christ for your salvation. But if you don't go to church, you probably won't go to heaven as a healthy, spiritually healthy Christian, or healthy person. Because coming together with God's people creates health. There's a story told of D.L. Moody's, the great evangelist's um, nephew, who didn't want to go to church anymore. And uh, his uncle D.L. heard about it, and D.L. said, uh, hey, can we go for a walk? And he's thinking, here it comes. So the nephew went over to Uncle D.L.'s house and uh, before they went for a walk, uh, D.L. Moody uh, went over and pulled a, a hot coal out from the rest of the coals in the, in the hearth and set it aside. And they went for a walk. You know, the nephew didn't think anything of what he'd seen. And they went for a walk and they just kind of caught up and then the nephew's like, hey, he's not bringing up, my, uh, he's not bringing up my, the church thing, so I guess I'm good. Well, they got back to the house took their coats off, and Dwight L. Moody went over to the hearth, and he said, well, would you look at that? And he called his nephew over, and he said, look at this. He said, the coal that I took out from the other hot coals is now cold and burned out. Isn't that interesting? And the nephew said, I get it. I get it. If you separate yourself from God's people, you separate yourself from a context where you're going to be hearing the gospel and processing the gospel and growing together with others in Christ. Um, more often than not, that coal burns out and 
and that the spiritual vitality just dissipates and the hot scorching sun scorches the seed. Okay, the third factor. So we've looked at what the, the rocks, we've looked at the, the, the birds, and Jesus talks about these thorns. He says in verse seven, other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And then Jesus explains this. He says, others are the ones sown among the thorns, they, those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Another way of saying this is things of the world become too important or more important than God. The, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, Jesus says. These things are called idols. It's placing too high a value on something and having a different value system about the things of this world than God does. It's, it's worshiping created things instead of worshiping the creator. It's making something, anything, too important. Jesus uses the phrase, the deceitfulness of riches. That means you get tricked into putting too much meaning in these things. He uses the phrase, the desires for other things. Jesus ceases to be enough. He ceases to be our treasure. He ceases to be beautiful, and your heart seeks to fill that space with other things. Now, Christ's disciple John tells us what is in the world in 1 John 2.16 but I'm gonna quote it out of the King James because that's the popular version that's often quoted. Here's what John says about the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So he says that the things that are, that are dangerous to us in the world are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. So often when we hear this verse, and we hear the word lust, we just think it refers to sex. But that's not at all what this verse is saying. John here talks about something that all the apostles talk about, and to miss it is to miss one of the most important things that they taught. Something that explains the thorns Jesus is talking about in the parable of the sower. And, and we see it in this word, lust. The, the, the Greek word for the word lust is the Greek word epithumia, and it literally means over-desire. So I'm going to read the, the verse again with that definition. For, the over for all that is in the world, the over-desire of the flesh, the over-desire of the eyes. That's why the ESV actually does translate it, the desire of the flesh, but even that doesn't get at the heart of the meaning because it literally means over-desire. So it means the problem is not what we're desiring, but it's having a supercharged, overarching desire that's out of whack, an inordinate desire, you might say. It's taking a good thing, and making it the best thing, the ultimate thing. It's finding our identity in something outside of God. Think about it. Love me some sports, sports are great, but epithumia even sounds like a disease, doesn't it? You've got epithumia, man. Epithumia makes sports an idol. So I find my identity in my sports team, or if I'm an athlete, I find my identity in my sport and my accomplishments in that sport. And that's a deadly thing for an athlete because when your identity is in the sport and you take a big loss, then that defines you. And, and it, shapes, it shapes your understanding of yourself, your thinking about yourself. But as a Christian, my identity is in Jesus and my goal in sports is to glorify God. And my goal in watching sports is to just enjoy them unto the Lord with my friends and family and not to idolize them. 
So literally anything can become an idol when we have epithumia. Food is good, but over-desire food, epithumia, and it becomes what? Gluttony. Money is not evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says. So what's over-desire for money? It becomes greed. It does become sinful if we over-desire it. Sex is not dirty or evil. God created it, and he made it a beautiful thing in the, in the context of biblical marriage. But over-desire for sex becomes what? Addiction to pornography or sex outside of God's plan for it. Anything can become an idol. I remember one idol that came up with one of my kids was we were at church and we were worshiping Jesus and all of a sudden their group of friends walked in and they went from like singing with all their heart and worshiping Jesus to just, it's just all of a sudden it's like they're, they just turned the switch off of their worship. <clears throat> and afterwards I, I met with uh, this child of mine, it was years ago, and I said, hey, what, what was going on there when your friends walked in? I said, can I ask you a question? We, th we have a lot of conversation about idols and this whole idea of epithumia. I said, was the opinion of your friends in that moment more important than your love for God? Was it more important than God? And, and this child began to, to cry and realize that there was this idol that they had, that the opinion of their friends became way too important in their lives. This can even happen with family. I love my family, but my family makes a terrible God. My family was not created to be the center of the universe, but to orbit around the center. That Jesus is central and we arrange our lives around him. Family actually works better that way. That's how it was designed to work. It wasn't designed to be the center. So these thorns, these idols come in and they choke the word. Uh, some of you, probably most, most of us have, have, have seen the uh, Star Wars series. Think about Anakin Skywalker and his, his journey into darkness in the Star Wars series. What was his epithumia? He idolized Padme, his wife, and his over-desire sent him down a dark path to the dark side. He had epithumia. The thorns of that dark desire choked out all that was good in him. It's a picture of what Jesus is talking about here. These thorns come in, they choke the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They, they choke out that good seed. And so you see, you see the birds, you see the rocks, you see the thorns. And then finally, we see the good soil. The good soil. And it's interesting because a quarter, only a quarter of the seed actually bears fruit. And that's encouraging to me as a pastor um, because sometimes we look at our results and say, oh man, this person or that person, you know, they, they turned away from the faith or, you know, this, this thing, this relationship, discipleship relationship didn't turn out well. Well, God is telling us up front that there, there's a portion of the seed that falls that will not bear fruit. Uh, and, and some of it will even seem to grow for a while, which really should kind of create the fear of the Lord in, in everyone hearing this message. We want to be in that good soil. What is it? What is the good soil? I love how the Bible affirms itself. If you want to find out what the Bible teaches, find out what it also teaches. Some of you might remember this from our series on Ephesians a few months back. Ephesians 3.17 answers this question of where the good soil is. And it says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. Love, 
This tells us that the soil, the good soil, is the love of God in Christ. That's where stuff grows in God's kingdom. I'll put it this way. You cannot grow in God unless you believe in God's love. John, I'm going to quote Christ's disciple again, wrote uh, several epistles, wrote one of the gospels. He said, we love him because he first loved us. Ah, that tells us that our love for God doesn't begin with us. It begins with him. You see, the gospel is one of these two things. Either it's I love God and therefore I put him in my debt and he loves me back. Or the gospel is, God loves me, and therefore I love him back. One of those is the gospel, and one of those is not. One of those is good soil, and one of those is not. What is it? Which is it? Well, clearly, the gospel teaches he loved us first. And out of that, my love for him grows like a fruit. Jesus and his disciple John are telling us that the soil of believing in the love of God that came to you when you didn't or wouldn't come to him is the soil where stuff grows in the kingdom of God. It's not performance-driven love. I mean, is there anything worse than a child that has to perform for their parents' love? It's so sad. The most healthy child is one that has a security of knowing that they are loved regardless of their performance. As a matter of fact, a child can't even physically mature in their infant days without parental love. Their growth is stunted. I mean, of course they grow, but it's stunted. I have some friends, Heidi and I have some friends, uh, Phil and Jill Neville, who went and adopted two children from Kazakhstan, and they were told, um, don't be surprised at how much the children grow in the first year that they're in your care, because in some of these or orphanages overseas, there's, there's not enough parental love. There's nobody to hold these babies. And some of the babies even die, be, literally because they don't have the stimulus of parental love. It's, it's awful. Sure enough, after uh, a year of being with the Nevilles, those kids just blasted through the growth curve. It was unbelievable just to see how much they grew in that year. And what, what, what did that come from? The stimulation of parental love. And that's a picture of the gospel. You can't grow. Your growth is stunted in the Christian faith unless you believe in the love of God. That's the good soil. My son Jack, it's wrestling season, so to give you a wrestling uh, story from my wrestling life. My son Jack, when he was three years old, he's 12 now. When he was three, he wrestled in his first uh, tournament with a bunch of other three-year-olds. And we trained him up and you know, helped him get ready, and uh, he was all excited. But he went out, and in his first match, he got taken down, and this kid put a half Nelson on him, which is where you put the hand under the arm and on the back of the neck, and tried to turn him over, you know, by, by bending his, his neck. And Jack didn't go over, but he just, like, the kid just, like, smeared his face on the mat over and over in a circle. We call it, he clocked Jack, you know, just, and every time Jack's face would come in front of me, you know, in, in the corner where I was coaching, he'd be like, ah! the whole period and he just stopped wrestling and and uh he lost the match and and uh he went to his mom you know for comfort and you know i was i was frustrated you know that he let his emotions i mean there's only three right but that he he lost the match because he just lost control of his emotions and so we coached him up next match it's you know 
save your tears, let's let's just wrestle, and you know, things are gonna happen in the match that are hard, but keep wrestling. Same thing happened in the third match. And uh, he, uh, <clears throat> he went to his mom again, and, and he could tell that I was disappointed. And I, I just kind of walked away and, and at the other end of the gym, and I actually was go gonna go out into the, you know, the, the hallway area just to get some fresh air. And all of a sudden I heard, Dad, Daddy, I thought, no, that sounds like my son Jack's voice, but it can't be Jack because he's clear on the other side of the gym in his mother's arms. And I turned around and I could, I could see in his eyes, he was, was scared. He was scared that he'd lost my love. He knew he disappointed me. And he'd run across the gym when I walked away because he was looking for assurance. Daddy, he said and I could see it in his eyes, and I knew this was gonna be a big moment in his life, that I needed to show him the security of my love for him. So I looked at him and I smiled and I picked him up in my arms and I said, Jack, it's okay. It's okay that you lost. I, of course I want you to succeed, but it's okay that you lost. And I held him in my arms. I said, I love you. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. It, you know, it doesn't matter how you perform on, on a wrestling mat. You just need to know that I love you and one, wins and losses are gonna happen. But one thing you'll always have is my love for you, Jack. I love you and I'll always love you. And just built that security into him. Now, what happened? The end of the story, he went out the next match, pinned a kid and talked about it for the next three months. I remember we were at a doctor's office like two months later. And the nurse came in and he goes, hey, I bet you didn't know that I pinned a kid. So cute. So where, where do we get that? Where do we make contact with that love from the Father? You know what the Bible says it is? The Bible says it's at the cross of Christ. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us. He hugs us, picks us up in his arms and hugs us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. There's the soil. It's not our performance. We were still sinners when his love began to act. It's his performance by going to the cross when we were undeserving. We find that soil. We find that love, that unconditional love, that love that first loved us. It's in Christ. How do we respond to this message? Two simple ideas, two simple gospel ideas, two simple gospel commands. Two things the gospel instructs us to do, to repent and believe. What's repentance? It's simply admitting your need of this soil. I need to be loved by God. I need to be loved independent of my record, of my performance. It's admitting that you need that soil and that that is the state that you're in, that we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory and need that unconditional love, that forgiveness. That's repentance, it's the humility to say that. And secondly, it's faith. What is faith? It's the, it's the eyes of your heart looking away from yourself as a means of salvation. It's rejecting self-salvation and it's looking to Christ. You know, we have all these books and teachings in society about motivation, self-motivation and self-belief. And yet people move from one book to another because it doesn't actually satisfy and it doesn't, it doesn't ultimately itch the itch. People know they're broken. And what I'm preaching today, what I'm teaching today is exactly what people are looking for. They're looking for the, the unconditional security of salvation in Jesus Christ, the salvation, the salvation and security of the love of God. That's what everybody wants, they just don't know it. 
So faith is looking away from yourself to that self-help idea, self-salvation idea, and it's looking to Christ. And the effect of that will be love for God. We love because he first loved us. The effect of that will be love for God and obedience to his word. And Josh talks about HBO, hear, believe, obey. And obedience, and obey is the third one because it's the effect. Hearing and believing is the cause. The effect is obedience. And so that's the parable of the sower. Where is that seed in your life right now? Is it being picked away by lies? I encourage you to reject those lies. Is it falling among the rocks? Are, the, is, is it, are trials causing you to question God's goodness or persecution too difficult? Somebody tell you that, you know, Jesus is just going to bless you all the time and everything's going to be great and easy? Reject that lie and understand. Jesus said, in this world you will have much trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. Realize that when you have Jesus, you have everything, even if you're suffering, even if you're struggling. Rest in him. Are you among the thorns? Are the, is, are the idols of your life competing for your relationship with Jesus? Turn away. Turn away from your idols. Let the idols fall. Turn to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is enough. Thanks for watching. Hope you can come see us in person sometime. But if not, I know some people watch us in different parts of the country. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your support and your prayers. And again, together, we remember that Christ Jesus is enough. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.